Charles Dickens. <laughs> they, so so now, now that you've all seen it, you say, oh, of course, I remember. That's Charles Dickens. Okay, so we know Charles Dickens is famous for lots of things, uh, but, it, but we remember him especially at Christmas time because he wrote The Christmas Carol. The Christmas Carol, a, was it A Christmas Carol? Uh, what, um, but that's him. That's a picture of Charles Dickens. Um, now here's another guy. Um, go, go, go! All right. So, who's this guy? <laughs> not, not, T, not T. S. Eliot. Uh, not Albert Einstein. Uh, no, he's not very happy. Well, he's old. First of all, he lives in the 19th century. So you just by default, you're not happy if you live in the 19th century. Uh, not a composer. Um, he's a, actually, he's an, he's an inventor and uh, an entrepreneur and a metallurgist. Uh, and that still isn't going to help you because this is not something... Edison? No. Um, to, y'all, I... I I, I would never get this. Nobody's going to get this. Uh, so I'm just going to tell you what his name is. His name is Henry Bessemer. <laughs> okay, so, um, but here's the thing. Does it, now that I've told you his name, do you have any idea why you should care about him? Anybody? Anybody? What? There you go. Give... An extra banana to the guy on the back row. Henry, Be- Henry Bessemer uh, is the person to first patent and promote as a worldwide industry the process that became known as the Bessemer process for making steel. Because uh, so you, people knew how to make stuff out of iron, but iron had this tendency to get to oxidize just like that and shatter and break and, and it was it was good up to a you could refine it up to a point and then it just you couldn't take it any any longer because iron has too many impurities in it the Bessemer process is the process that allowed you to quickly and economically remove like 99% of all the impurities from iron and leave you with steel um, I mean, people have been always, the Chinese have been making steel for a thousand years, but not in huge, massive quantities. With the Bessemer process allowed you to do that. And so now, what do Charles Dickens and Henry Bessemer have in common? Pretty much nothing. <laughs> um, but let me just. Um, I know there are a lot of things about this particular Christmas season that have been, it's just been, I don't know, I don't know that it's extra, any more stressful this Christmas season than any other previous Christmas season, but at some point during this Christmas season, I was just thinking to myself, how did we end up with this? Going from unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. How do we go from that to all of this, how did we get into this Christmas rat race that is exhausting and overwhelming and expensive? 
how did we, how did that even happen? How did anybody connect um, this to um, the, the, uh, the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 or anything that has anything to do with Jesus? How did we get here? I was just like, um, so um, I, w- I didn't actually go out and start trying to research it, but just over the next week or week and a half, uh, articles just popped up on the internet in different magazines or different uh, discussion forums just because people have nothing better to do with their time than to write about everything under the sun. Uh, and so I started sussing some things out here. Um, um, so, so I, where did Christmas, like Christmas, the way we are stuck with it now, where did it come from? How did we get here? I'm going to try to run this by really fast. Uh, but, so Christmas wasn't even celebrated until the 4th century. Uh, and there was after lots of confusion about the date, and there are all sorts of different theories about how we ended up with December 25th as the date. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm going to skip all of that because there are different opinions and people can make good, good cases uh, for how we ended up with a winter date versus what, how, why it should have been a spring date. And, of course, we have the, the Orthodox uh, church that doesn't celebrate on the 25th. They celebrate on January the 6th. And how did that happen? There's lots of history there. Uh, but anyhow, it took the church until uh, um, like uh, the 4th century to even figure out that, we, that they wanted to celebrate it. The uh, church wasn't initially all that interested in celebrating the birthday of Jesus because it wasn't a specified date. Uh, and so there was some momentum. It, it, it sorted itself out over several hundred years, and boom, eventually we got, we got Christmas. We got happy birthday, Jesus, on December the 25th-ish. Okay. Uh, but over the centuries, as you know, it's, it became syncretized with, with pagan elements. Again, um, there's, uh, there's the cynical opinion that says, oh, Christians just went and hijacked uh, pagan holidays, uh, to trick bunches of people into uh, coming into the church. Uh, and then there, uh, there's an equally good case to be made for the fact that as Christians left their pagan roots uh, um, and became uh, and gave their lives to Jesus, they wanted to find a way to celebrate that in a new context. And so that they, they brought their holidays with them and turned them into reasons to celebrate Jesus. So we could go all, you can go around and around that mountain, but we're not going to talk anymore about that either. Uh, but it was, um, there was, once Christmas got started and spread across different cultures, lots of different cultures brought their stuff in with them and somehow know that the church just unfolded that all as ways to celebrate. Um, but also... The character of the celebration of, Christian, of, of Christmas fluctuated over the centuries. Um, um, for long periods, it was just an excuse for drunken partying and worse. Uh, and it got so bad that at different times across the years, the church just suppressed it. Uh, it, it was, the church did use it to promote this idea that wealthy noblemen and landowners should do something nice for the um, their 
uh, tenants who lived on their property and farmed their land. And that once a year, the noblemen should do something nice for their uh, serfs at Christmas. Uh, and, and, uh, but it was either a very solemn day where nothing was celebrated or it was uh, a raucous, um, not quite orgiistic uh, celebration of drunken partying, uh, and it just whipped back and forth. And for most of the time, uh, the church was very ambivalent about how to celebrate Christmas. Uh, is it okay? Is it not okay? For, for a while in England, it was just completely banned. You couldn't celebrate it at all. Then, it was, then the laws relaxed a little bit, but you couldn't really, it really wasn't a thing you wanted to be very open about. Anyhow, um, so the question that we've got is, how did, how did Christmas go from an almost obscure and semi-scandalous and almost pagan celebration to what we have today? A suffocatingly sentimental retail juggernaut that drives the profits of almost all global retail organizations. How do we get here? Um, <clears throat> okay, so it started with, with Charles Dickens. It straight up started with Charles Dickens. Let me tell you why. Uh, By 1843, Dickens was already a very famous author. He was a, a, a celebrity all over Britain and all over Europe and beginning to be a celebrity in, in the, the colonies, America, by 1843. But by 1843, his sales were also dropping, and he needed a new hit. He needed something to drive sales and build his brand. Um, so... Uh, Here's something that most people don't know. He, he considered himself to be deeply spiritual. He was a Unitarian, which was a fairly liberal denomination even back then, but he had a deep respect for Jesus and had a deep respect, uh, very passionate about the gospel's mandate to love your neighbor. And he was just about to start, pretty much on his own, a national campaign to draw attention to oppressed workers, especially kids. The condition of industrial workers in England in, in the 1840s, 1850s was horrible. Just look it up. It was terrible. It was awful. And uh, he was shocked and he was scandalized. And he had written a pamphlet, or he, he had the outline in his mind for a pamphlet that he was just going uh, to... You know, they didn't have 24-hour cable news cycle in those days. And they didn't have blogs and they didn't have YouTube, and they didn't have that stuff. So if you really wanted to start something, you had to write it out in a pamphlet form, and you had to just pass it out to people on the streets, uh, and then you had to make speeches about it. And he was planning to do that uh, when uh, he got this inspiration, kind of desperation and inspiration at the same time. He needed a new book, and he needed a campaign. So he converted an idea he had for a pamphlet into a, a novel about how Christmas changed a cynical businessman into a compassionate philanthropist. And the whole miracle, as far as Charles Dickens, there is the, uh, his story, Christmas Carol, is a story about all sorts of miracles, but the miracle that 
I'm not making this up. The miracle that Dickens wanted his readers to come away with was that by the end of the story, Ebenezer Scrooge gave his clerk a raise. He paid him a living wage. That was what he hoped would happen. But in the process of writing this book, it became a bestseller. It was the second most purchased book in the Western world for the next 40 or 50 years. The only book that outsold it was the Bible. But up until the 1890s, more copies of, of Christmas Carol sold around the world than any other book except the Bible. It just took the entire Western world by storm. Um, and, and it crystallized the entire Western psyche around uh, the set of traditions that we celebrate today. Even down and including wishing people Merry Christmas it comes out of that book. It wasn't that people never said Merry Christmas before that. It's just that after this book, everybody said Merry Christmas. And everybody um, had family parties. And everybody started buying gifts for their family. And this whole notion of using Christmas, peace on earth, goodwill to men, to go out and find um, people who were struggling and who needed extra help so that they could have uh, a better Christmas. That all comes from the Christmas carol. Um, so th- when we're looking at today, all you know, like the season of caring that uh, Austin uh, American Statesman promotes where they, they find needy families and, and match them up with people who want to help them have a, a better Christmas. And, and even the Christmas outreach stuff that we do for the kids here in Grill, all of that stuff, um, was strictly and um, powerfully inspired by the images of the Christmas Carol. Um, it, it was it became everybody's Christmas handbook. Um, and again, not that people didn't celebrate Christmas in some level uh, before this book was written. And after the book was written, you know, around the world, people still had certain Christmas traditions. But all of a sudden, uh, across the Western world, Christmas celebrations took on this more uniform set of... Um, there were Christmas carols sung before Dickens. But Christmas carols, singing Christmas carols became a cultural thing after that. I mean... Um, the, what we still, the bones of our modern Christmas all came out of this book. Um, so, there you go. Family, presents, um, being extra nice to, to needy people at Christmas. All came out of the Christmas carol. Uh, but wait. There is more. Here's a quote from a lady named Jane Ann Brown, uh, 100 year, 101 years old in 1894. She gave this quote to the New York Times as a part of an, an article that the Times did in 1894 talking about Christmas celebrations in America. And she said, for most of my life, people always made more out of New Year's 
than Christmas. She grew up in America, in, in New York City. Uh, so if she was 101, what year was she born? Do the math here real quick. Help me out. 1793. So she was born in 1793. By the time we get to 1850, she's already almost 60 years old. She's lived most of a, a normal life, especially for people in those days. And then she just kept on living. But for most of her life... Uh, as she was growing up and as she was raising her family, Christmas was, oh, it was so Christmas happened, but uh, culturally, in the, in the time that she grew up in America, New Year's was the big celebration and the people pulled out all the stops for it. And Christmas was like an afterthought, which wasn't any kind of a thing at all. And so that all changed by 1860 when the Bessemer steel process made it possible to produce thousands of miles of train track quickly and cheaply. And by the second half of the 19th century, America was covered in railway, which made it possible for the first time in history for people to do what? Buy stuff. Because up, so, so the railroads are being built out at exactly the same time that the Industrial Revolution is kicking in. Uh, the Industrial Boom in America created a massive boost in the creation of consumer goods in need of a delivery uh, Season and a reason to buy them. Because, um, you know, in the Little House on the Prairie, um, you had maybe a general store and maybe you got stuff in every once in a while. Uh, most, most goods were produced uh, locally um, and, and it took a long time and, uh, and think, to get things to come in by wagon, took a super long time or by steamboat. And, I mean, but um, suddenly, with railroads everywhere, people could also look into a catalog and say, oh my goodness, I need five of those. And with Christmas coming, I can get one for Carl and one for Carlene and one for Chuck and one for Rosie. And... And the railway will just bring them right to my town. And, and I can go into a little store and buy them up. It's, so the, the railroads uh, triggered the first, created the conditions for, for a massive retail consumer-driven economy. Up until that time... People's lives were usually based around what they could grow themselves, what they could kill themselves, what they could make themselves. You could go to a town and you could hang out and you could be a shopkeeper. But now people anywhere could buy stuff. And Christmas became the perfect season, the perfect reason for buying stuff. And it's the railroads that got it there. Without the railroads, we would not have the beginning of Christmas the way we have it today. So this lady was just 
She lived most of her life where that didn't happen. By 1894, it was happening all the time. And she was like, dude, this wasn't, this is just completely different. Totally different than when I was a kid. <clears throat> so, um, thank you, Charles Dickens. Thank you, Henry Bessemer, for completely messing up the message of Christmas. Um, Dickens shifted the focus from Jesus to the spirit of Christmas. Uh, a super saccharine, treacly kind of combination of family and short-term benevolence to help people have a Merry Christmas. Well, it's so important now. It's Christmas time. What can we do to help those less fortunate have a Merry Christmas? I'm, I'm not opposed to helping people less fortunate any time of the year. Honestly, it drives me nuts that most people work on it just for three weeks leading up to Christmas. And then like, I'm done. I'm done with that. I've got to go back to my real life. <clears throat> um, but thank you, Charles Dickens, for that. Um, the railroads made it easier for people to buy everyone a Merry Christmas. But now, what I'm about to share with you is just so weird. I don't, I'm not sure I even expect you to understand it. But I was just trying to make, get, wrap my brain around this and try to, try to understand what, what's happening, what happened about um, the whole Christmas. How do we get from Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, born a savior, to, to this? Now, now I know how we... Now I know how we got there. And then it just hit me how ridiculous it is. Uh, the good news of Christmas, the coming of the Savior, was reduced to the good news about automobile tires. Now, and let me, now I have to explain that because I don't expect you to get it. But let's assume uh, that somewhere in, uh, in the history of the world, people decided to make a big holiday out of the celebration of the invention of the automobile. Okay? So let's, let's talk about some of the wonderful things, the helpful things, uh, uh, some of the good things about automobiles. Just talk to me. Tell me about automobiles. What? Racing. Racing. You're going to have a lot of fun, and you can go really fast with an automobile. Yeah, it's okay. So we have to have another conversation over here. Uh, but since they are made, um, so yeah, that's right. Horses. Well, people found interesting ways to get killed in, in carriage accidents. But be right. It, it does. The faster you go, the faster you can die. I'll, I'll certainly give you that. But you've got cars that can take you places. They can take you places fast. They've got. Um, for the first time in history, it, it, was, it was not a horse. It was an internal combustion engine, and you had a powertrain, and you had uh, an, an engine, and you had uh, combined all these things, fuel, a wonderful invention that would, that would haul big loads. You could, you could, you could you had way faster than a horse. It, all, all of the wonder, and wonderful things you could do. And, and it had, for the first time, not wagon wheels, but it had 
uh, rubber tires and then eventually composite tires, uh, all sorts of things. So it revolutionized, you could say the invention of the car certainly revolutionized everything. And so maybe there's a reason to celebrate the invention of the car, except not always. Um, But let's suppose now the celebration simply focuses on tires. Forget the powertrain, forget uh, the, you know, the transmission, forget the engine, forget being able to drive any place in it, forget uh, being able to haul anything, forget all of the benefits of the car and just focus on, we're celebrating the invention of the automobile, here's a tire. Let's all sit around and sing songs about Christmas and, I mean, sing songs about cars, and here's a tire. Um, every year, we're going to get new tires, and, we're, and nobody actually drives cars anymore, but we remember how wonderful the tire is. The most important thing about celebrating automobiles is tires, and here's a tire for you, and here's a tire for you, and here's a tire for you. Merry automobile, have another tire. So, so uh, th- this is a very difficult uh, analogy to follow. But it's just what hit me. It's like celebrating Christmas without celebrating the good news of who Jesus is. It's like celebrating the invention of the car and only focusing on a tire. The, ho- the whole benefit for, that automobiles bring to society isn't about tires. Tires is just one little incidental thing that is, that is a part of a much bigger plan, right? But if we sit around and we celebrate, yay, tires, yay, tires, isn't it wonderful what we can do with a tire? Uh, well, we don't even drive a car, but we've got a tire, and we set up a tire in our living room, and we sing songs about, um, oh, good your tire, oh, good your tire. I don't know. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So now you're just going to take us completely down another rabbit hole. So, so um, the amazing new vehicle with all of these features, but the eyes of the world give each other um, give each other tires for Christmas with no car. Uh, tires without the car are how useful? Not. And celebrating Christmas without the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most outrageous joke perpetrated on humanity in the history of the world. Um, and this, is, you know, this isn't really a sermon. This is the rant. Um, I couldn't think of anything else to talk about today. This is just a rant. Um, but you can, now you can see the, the cultural dots. And I'm not saying that putting up a Christmas tree is bad. I'm not saying buying presents is bad. I'm not saying spend time with your family is bad. I'm not saying singing Christmas carols is bad. I'm just saying that now we see how the devil very cleverly took something that could be a tremendous celebration of the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he turned it into something that's about comparatively as lame, as 
celebrating a tire with no car. Uh, it just doesn't really do anybody any good. So here's one of my famous Christmas verses. Don't mess with the message. This is from Philippians chapter 2. Um, this is one of my favorite Christmas verses that doesn't actually mention shepherds or wise men. Uh, but it's still the Christmas message. It, it just doesn't have any sheep or donkeys or, uh, or King Herod in it. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, which means fought for and held on to. Mine, mine, mine. But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This word emptied, he emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis, and it means he turned himself upside down and dripped out every drop of what it was that made him a divine, eternal being. He gave it all up. It wasn't just that, well, uh, I know I'm really uh, a divine, I'm, I am part of the Godhead, but I'm just going to try to control myself down on earth and try not to be so gaudy down there. And try, I'm going to try to be like a human person. No, he, he, he turned himself upside down. He let go of it. He dripped out every drop and separated himself from his divine nature. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Now, it was bad enough that he went from being a divine being to being like less than a cockroach. Merry Christmas. I'm, you know, my Christmas gift to you is I'm going to become a cockroach so that somebody can squish me. Uh, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From God, eternal, divine, super powerful being, to a weak, messy, um, sort of fallible, broken human being. He became exactly in every way like we are, except for one thing. He didn't sin. But in every other way, he became exactly like us. And for this reason, he became obedient to the point of death on the cross. For this reason, God raised him up highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, and, oh, wait for it, under the earth, every creature will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right? That's... The Christmas message. And that's what ought to be in Christmas cards. This is, this is the Christmas message that we ought to be shouting from the treetops. Forget about Charles Dickens for a minute. 
because it's not enough. Forget about buying people presents because it's not enough. It's deceptive. It's discouraging. It's overwhelming. It's to a certain degree depressing. It's super expensive. Uh, it's exhausting. And it would all be worth it if even for a second people would talk about this. And we are letting the world get away with avoiding the issue and missing the message. So I'm just going to encourage you, think about this for next year, or if you're like some people, like Peggy's cousin, who doesn't get around to sending out your Christmas cards until February, uh, it's not too late. But this, this ought to be uh, Merry Christmas. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. This is the Christmas message. This is the only thing that makes any difference. This is the only reason Jesus came. Um, this doesn't have anything to do... Um, well, I'm not going to go down that road again. I'm, because I'll just get myself even more wound up. Um, now that, that I think I've at least really briefly and, and inelegantly connected the dots for how Christmas became what it is. We have to really prayerfully come up with a strategy... The Holy Spirit's strategy, not ours, for pushing out more aggressively a different message next year. Then, pretty much, th- this is this is it. This is what we're supposed to be celebrating. If you're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus, celebrate the birth of Jesus for the right reason, which is, yeah. Like out of the, that's right, the, the best Christmas pageant ever. Hey, for under you, unto you a, a child is born. And we brought him a ham. Uh, anyhow. <laughs> anyhow. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we just feel like a frog in a beaker and the water just gets hotter and hotter and hotter and we just play right along. So many things happen at Christmas, Lord, um, that we're just gasping, trying to keep up instead of reserving time to seek your face and to be restored in our faith and to be proclaimers of good news. Every time we wish people Merry Christmas and don't tell them the meaning of Christmas, we're just become part of the problem. And every time, even Lord, every time we do something really, really nice for somebody who's in need at Christmas time and we don't tell them the reason, We're not really fixing anything. We're not really a part of any solution. So Holy Spirit, start by burning this message from Philippians 2 into our Christmas consciousness.
so that we can be excited, not just during the Christmas season, but all year. Excited to declare, to proclaim, to impart the whole story. To give hope to people in a way that tinsel and wrapping paper never will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.